there in Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be there in just a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that it uh, reveals truth to us in understanding. I pray that you would help me to share it. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. A while back, uh, I was listening to radio. I was listening to radio, and I and I heard on the on this radio that about a lady, and this was this was a number of years ago. This was before the turn of the century. There there was this lady. I heard this story about a lady who had been bitten by a dog with rabies. A, a lady had been bitten by a dog with rabies, and she went to the doctor. And this is again at the turn of the century before they had a a cure for rabies before they had the serum. And so after checking her out, he said, Ma'am, I'm so sorry that you have rabies. There's really nothing that I can do. Medical science hasn't developed anything for it at this particular time. And at that moment, she got out a, a, a piece of paper and she got out a pencil and she began to write a list of names hurriedly. And the doctor interrupted her after a moment or two and he said, um, Ma'am, what are you doing? Are you making out your will? And she said, no. I'm making out a list of people that I want to bite. I'm making out a list of people I want to bite. I was at the bank. I won't tell you which bank it was. But I was at the bank the other day, and there was a little, little line there. And I was right behind a man that was in his late 80s. And there was a young bank teller, fairly new. And this man was hard of hearing to begin with. And he was having a difficult time with this teller. And so finally he said, well, let me get the bank manager. And so he walked away around the corner. And I kid you not, this 80-some-year-old man turned to his friend, who was about 15 feet away over waiting for him, and pointed to the bank teller and made this motion. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <clears throat> One time I was driving down the freeway, and it was, uh, it was a four-lane freeway in the middle of this community, in the middle of the city, and, and uh, I passed up this elderly lady on the left side, and we came to a, a stoplight, and she rolled down her window and she began to yell at some, something at me. And I couldn't figure it out at first. She was yelling something out the window. And this, we're talking about a lady that's probably in her 80s as well. She, and so, so I rolled down my window and she said, Young man! Young man! Pointing her bony finger at me. Young man, don't you know the speed limit is 35 miles an hour? And you were going 40 miles an hour! You, you're breaking the speed limit! Shame on you! True story. And then she took off. You know, <laughs> I relate those <laughs> particular stories to you because uh, life just happens, you know. Life just happens. You, you never know the circumstance and situation that you find yourself in. And, and really, sometimes it's, you just have to laugh at some of the situations that you find yourself in because life, life is very, very difficult at times and and uh, we just go through it all the time. Uh, this morning, I, I want to give us a word of encouragement. You know, what's the alternative? 
What's the alternative to, to uh, all the stuff that we're talking about? Give up, throw in the towel. You know, God has called us to be people of faith. God has called us to be people of hope. Somebody has said that hope stands on its tippy toes and anticipates. It allows us to get through difficult, difficult times and trials in our lives. Without hope, we might as well throw in the towel and we might as well give up. Hope allows us to continue to go forward and to continue to persevere despite what's happening in our lives. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture this morning, we find the greatest message I believe that's ever been told. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more, notice, no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For, for notice, for to us, another translation says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. May God bless the reading of his word here. Let me set the scene for you. If I could just set the scene for you. Let me set the background. Let me give you the backdrop you might want to say. It was a time of great distress, a time of great distress for the Jewish people when Isaiah received this particular prophecy. The nation Israel really, carte blanche, most of them had turned away from God. King Ahaz, who was a king at this particular time, he was wicked and he was an idolatrous leader. Not only did he worship idols, but he took his own children. He took his own children and he put them in the fires of these idols. He burned and sacrificed his own children. He was a terrible, wicked king. Now to protect himself, because he got wind that the countries around him were going to attack him to protect himself. He took gold and silver from the temple area and he paid off the king of Assyria. On top of this, the majority of the people at this particular time were little better than the king because they were terrified that a neighboring, our neighboring countries were going to come in and invade. They saw the signs too. 
And during this particular time, instead of turning to God, many of these individuals consulted sorcerers, turned to medians, turned to so-called witches and fortune tellers, instead of turning to God Almighty. Did you know that I read a number of years ago that in the middle of this so-called recession or downturn in our economy, that there was a movement, there has been a movement toward astrology, once again, fortune-telling, spiritism, and trying to consult dead people. When people are under duress and under stress in their lives, when the nation is not doing well, unfortunately, instead of turning to God, often they'll consult or consort with these other medians and so on and so forth. Now, in the backdrop of this particular possible invasion that was going to occur, and political and moral corruption, and in the background of the spiritual darkness, and in the shadow, you might want to say, of this time, the Lord says this in my paraphrase. He says, there will be no more gloom, there will be no more darkness, because there will be a great light that will come. There will be increase of joy. Weapons of warfare will be shattered, and the enemy of our soul will be destroyed. Now, church family, who was Isaiah talking about? Who was Isaiah prophesying about? Who did he receive a prophecy about? Literally speaking, who could destroy the enemy of our souls? Who could destroy Satan in his courts? Who could bring spiritual light into the so-called darkness of the soul? Who could free people from the slavery of sin? Who would be our rescuer? We'll look at verses 6 and 7 one more time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on the shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one of those so-called messianic promises from the Old Testament. This is where Isaiah was revealed to him the person of Jesus Christ. One day, Isaiah said, a child would be born. God wrapped in the flesh that would step down in the quarters of time and be born as a baby. We call him Jesus. God wrapped in the flesh. And Jesus would not remain a baby, but he would grow up with his suntan face and carpenter hands. And he would teach a better way. And he would tell people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he would go to the cross. God wrapped in the flesh. Now, it's interesting to me because this word brought hope to Isaiah and his people. Brought hope to Isaiah and his people at this particular time. Because they saw into the future. I remember reading a number of years ago, uh, in 1982, that there was a major football game happening between uh, the University of Wisconsin, uh, I think they're called the Badgers, and between Michigan State, the Spartans. 
And it was a stadium packed full of 60,000 people on that particular afternoon. And the Spartans were beating the Badgers really badly. And, but as the afternoon went on, as the score increased, people in stands, Wisconsin fans, were clapping and they were yelling. They were clapping and they were yelling and there were joyful outbursts occurring. You see, what was happening is, is that many of these people had portable radios and they were listening to the third game of the World Series as the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals. (laughs) Those people in that stadium that day, they were responding. They were responding to another set of circumstances besides their immediate circumstances. And when Isaiah received this prophecy, it encouraged him and it encouraged people that were left, that were trying and endeavoring to serve the Lord. They just didn't look at their immediate circumstances because they got the eternal perspective. They got a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, even though Israel and Israel's circumstances were bleak, they saw the long-promised Messiah in the future. And instead of responding to the circumstances, again, it gave them hope. Now, the good news for us today is this. We don't have to wait for the messianic promise to be fulfilled. Jesus Christ has always, already fulfilled that messianic hope. Again, when he came, we read in Philippians chapter 2 that he coexisted, co-creator with God the Father, and he stepped down the course of time, and he was born as a baby. God wrapped in the flesh. God with us. God in our midst. I want you to notice specifically the names given to Jesus, describing who he was found in this particular passage of Scripture. Notice uh, he is called the Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The Hebrew word, therefore, wonderful, is translated and it is reserved only for God. It is a description given only to God, His handiwork, or His heavenly nature. In other words, Isaiah, through his prophecy, is describing the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Many people, when they think about Jesus, they think of Jesus as a great prophet. They think of Jesus as a great man. But Jesus said himself, I don't point to the way. I'm not one of many ways. He said, I am the way. I'm the way. And here we see in this Old Testament word description, wonderful, it's really conveying to us that he is God wrapped in the flesh. It is attributed to God himself. He's a wonderful counselor like no other. That word counselor comes to us in the New Testament. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, I have to leave. I have to go. But when I leave, I'm going to send my spirit, the Holy Spirit, to you. And he will be the counselor. And speaking to his disciples, he said, there will come a time when you will not know what to say 
and you will not know what to do. And my spirit will intervene and speak to you to know what to do and what to say. He is the paraclete, translated counselor. Translated, the spirit of the living God, when we receive Christ as our Savior, the spirit of the living God comes inside of our heart and he indwells us and he walks beside us and he enables us and he helps us in the things that we need wisdom in, the things that we need to make a decision about, the, the, the choices that we need to make, God promises to give us that Holy Spirit empowering power in our lives and the Counselor promises to walk beside us. He is the wonderful Counselor. How many of you like the peanut comic strip? You know, Charles Schultz uh, went to a Christian college a number of years ago and I'm not sure where he was at in his faith, but he sure talked a lot of Christian speak in that peanut cartoon strip. And I'll never forget Lucy. Lucy, um, she's holding up a sign, and she's got the words, counseling rates. Counseling rates. And then she's got the words, opinions, five cents. Thoughts for the day, 10 cents. Sound advice, 25 cents. Uh, our world and our culture tells us that we need to seek opinions from our secular world and our secular society. You, you need to get wisdom and direction from Dear Abby or Dear Ann Landers when she was alive, or I guess Dear Abby's passed away too, someone else is doing it, but and Oprah Winfrey and all these particular sources of help and counsel and understanding and you got to go to these secular counselors and you got you got to seek all of this stuff and you got to seek all these people and, and and maybe you maybe you just might get some sort of clue to your problem and some sort of understanding after going through all kinds of therapeutic sessions and yet Jesus Christ comes along and Jesus speaks to us and he says to to us today trust in God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he promises to direct your paths. He is the wonderful counselor, the paraclete. You say, Pastor Ron, it's, it's, it's just hard it's just really hard to figure out what I need to do and to trust in God. This is what the Bible says. He's our wonderful counselor. I've been there. He promises. Seek Him. He'll give you the wisdom or insight. He said, I don't know what to do. He'll give you the first step. And then you do the first step. And then he'll give you the second step. Sometimes it's just a little bit of faith at a time. A little bit of leading. Never the whole sheet. The second thing I want you to see here about Jesus, this Messianic promise. Notice, he is called the mighty God. 
Now, we've talked about this already just a little bit, but some people think that Jesus had these grandiose ideas about himself, this exaggerated um, uh, personality, this big personality that could fill up a whole room, that when he walked in, he had that kind of personality, this magnetic personality, and that his disciples were enamored with him. And they were so enamored with him that they created something that really wasn't there. But that's not true. That is not true whatsoever. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, through humility and humbleness, did not attract unnecessarily to himself. He came to serve and not be served. He went over and saw a need, a person that needed healing, Blind, deaf. One time he got the word that his good friend Lazarus died. And scripture says, Jesus wept. He wept. And went to where his body was at. And the people around him said, he's been dead long enough that he stinks. And Jesus raised him from the dead. He said, I don't point the way. I'm not one of many ways. He said, I am the way. I'm the way. He is a mighty God. He is God. There is no task too big or too small for him to accomplish. I'm reminded of that particular story that we read about the little boy and they had the fish, a few fish and loaf of barley bread. And his disciples were hungry. And the people around them had been hungry, over 5,000 people. And Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. And it says, 5,000 plus people were fed that day. He is mighty God. He is God wrapped in the flesh. He was God wrapped in the flesh. Uh, I want you to notice the fourth thing here that Isaiah shows about Jesus Christ. He, he says, He should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father. And somebody asked me right before church, what's going on here? He, he's our Heavenly Father. Well, you, you see, united, united with God the Father, Jesus is not limited to time or space because he's omnipresent, he's present everywhere. This is what the psalmist declares in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. Even on the far side of the seas, your hand will guide me. On the mountaintop, in the valley, in the desert, he's omnipresent. He is co-creator. Jesus was co- is co-creator with God the Father from the very pre-existent of time. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have uh, been up the top of Strawberry Mountain? I, 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 I talked to a couple of locals and they said, I've never been up there. <laughs> don't raise your hand if you've never been up there. <laughs> I was up at Strawberry Mountain uh, a couple of times. I've been up there. You know, it's kind of deceiving because you go on the backside and it looks a little closer than it actually is. It looks like it's pretty close. 
And it, it doesn't look like it will take you that long. But I think it, from the backside, isn't it like six or seven mile hike? And, and, and you're walking along there and you're walking along the trail and, and you're going along there and, uh, and you know, it's, it's kind of nice or whatever. And you, and, and you get pretty tired because you're kind of climbing uphill. And then you come to the base and it's all shell. Have you ever noticed that? The shell rock that's there? And you have to walk on the shell rock. And, and then, then the climb really begins, right? Because it goes straight up. You're going zigzagging back and forth and you're going back and forth and, and get up to the top. Now, doesn't it feel good to be on top? It feels really good to be on top. It feels good to be on top of that mountain. But the journey while you're walking along there, it was a little bit difficult. You got a little bit heavy winded. You got a little bit, you know, you sweat a little bit, whatever it may be. But once you got to the top, you finished, you finished the journey and you're there up on top. And then, what of you, right? Those of you been up there, what of you? That 360, I mean, you look all around and you look at the John Day Valley this way, the John Day Valley over here, and look it over there, whatever it may be. I mean, you see, you see, it seems like the whole world up there. God's up there. He's down here in the valley. He's on the other side of the sea. He's even out here in the ugly part of Burns. Did I say that? <laughs> People tell me they love living in Burns. I think, man, a lot of that desert stuff, you like living in there? Give me some mountains. And they say, well, there are the steam mountains there, but there's a lot of desert down there too, isn't there? Isn't that true? Okay, we're getting, getting, off, getting off this track here, Pastor. He's present. He's on... He's the everlasting Father. He, he's with us. He walks beside us. The fourth thing I want you to see in this particular passage of Scripture is that uh, it says that He's a wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now, what does that mean? Well, we read in Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The sound mind part is talking about peace. Peace despite the circumstances of life. Uh, peace in the middle, uh, peace in the eye of the storm. The storm's going on. P- peace. Uh, beyond human understanding, the peace of God will reign, rule and reign in your heart. Whatever the scripture says and whatever the scripture promises in our life, it's true. We can have the peace of God in the most difficult circumstances and that's happening around us. God's peace. But as I was saying next door in my Sunday school class, you have your still time in a safe place. You have your, the quietness. You feel the peace of God. You feel God's presence for the day. And what do you have to do? You have to go to work and you have to deal with people. Or you have to deal with circumstances around you. Now, those of you who are retired, you can just avoid people all day long if you want to. But those of us who are still working, we've got to work with people. And we've got to work with situations. And we've got to work with circumstances. And sometimes people and circumstances will get you off track and you just all of a sudden you begin to feel tense and uptight and you begin to feel tension in your life. And I believe that's when the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of our heart. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Ron? In difficult and diverse trials, and situation, the perfecting of your faith, God promises His peace.
So you take another moment to reorientate yourself to Him, to listen, to be still, to pray, to say, Satan, get behind me. Lord, give me your peace. Give me your presence. I want to read a story. When I read this story, you're going to say, now how does that tie into what we're talking about? Stay with me. It ties in. This is from an excerpt from a book. Someone writes this, this story. It's a wonderful story. This little section here from the book. As an infantry company commander in Vietnam in 1967, I saw Viet Cong soldiers surrender many times. As they were placed in custody, marched away, and briefly interrogated, their body language and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their heads in shame, staring at the ground, unwilling to look their captors in the eye. But some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them, resisting Uh, any attempt by our men to control them. They had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the enemy had withdrawn, I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viet Cong. Shot through the leg, he was hostile. He was frightened and yet helpless. He threw mud and kicked with his one good leg when anyone came near. When I joined the circle around the wounded wounded enemy, one soldier asked me, Sir, what do we do? He's losing blood fast and needs medical attention. I looked down at this struggling Viet Cong person and I saw a face of a 16, 17-year-old boy. I prayed a quick prayer. I unbuckled my pistol, handed it to a fellow soldier, hand grenades so he could not grab them. And then speaking gently, I got down to where he was at. I moved toward him. He stared fearfully at at first as I knelt down. But he allowed me to slide my arms uh, underneath him and pick him up. As I walked with him toward a waiting helicopter, he began to cry. And he began to weep. He, he, he kept looking at me and squeezing me tighter. We climbed into the helicopter and we took off. During the ride, our young captive sat on the floor, clinging to my leg. Never having ridden, I assume, in a helicopter, he looked out with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. He fixed his eyes back on me, and I smiled reassuringly, and I put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up and walked toward the medical tent. As we crossed the field, I felt the tenseness leave his body and his tight grasp loosened, and his eyes softened, and his head leaned against my chest. 
The fear and resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered. Why is it that often it takes so much for us to surrender completely and totally to God? He's not our enemy. Why is it that often it takes a crisis before we are moved to become tender toward the Lord? You know what Jesus said? He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest. Rest for your souls. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.